Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 13 says, and ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Our message tonight is entitled, Finding God in a Godless Society. Finding God in a Godless Society. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Once again, Lord, I ask that you make me a nail upon the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. But upon that nail, Lord, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Let Eric Walsh not be seen or heard. Instead, Father, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. It's our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. All right, so we're going to jump to the book of Acts, the ninth chapter. Uh, and we are going to read the first verse. And tonight, we're going to focus on the conversion of Paul as we deal with the subject, finding God in a godless society. Acts 9 and verse 1 says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went up unto the high priest. Saul here is um, just been elected to the Sanhedrin. The interesting thing about Saul is that he probably uh, got this nomination and election because of his uh, cooperation uh, in the persecution of Christians. Most notably, the Bible records the story of the stoning of Stephen, prophetically ending the 490-year prophecy. And after Stephen died, it was time for God to redirect the gospel to the Gentiles. I think the irony of this story is that God literally uses the very, the very man who persecuted the Christians to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter. In fact, Acts 26, when he is giving a defense before Agrippa, Paul says this about his behavior before he became a Christian. Acts 26 and verse 10 says, which thing I also did in Jerusalem and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. In other words, Paul voted to have them put to death. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. It was Paul's job to, uh, when he was still Saul, to function uh, uh, like, um, like, like someone who would chase down criminals, like a bounty hunter. And he was unleashed by the Sanhedrin uh, who had received authority to even chase the Christians in other cities uh, and in foreign lands. Paul's fury against the Christians came from the fact that he thought he was doing God's work. But the spirit of prophecy tells us that, in fact, when Paul uh, contemplated on Christ, there was rattling in his mind around whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. But the peer pressure of his time, the influence and power of the Sanhedrin, his upbringing and training as a perfect Pharisee, all worked to influence uh, Saul to want to persecute the Christians, and he thought he was doing God's work. 
And as I speak to you young people tonight, I submit that there are challenges for Christians today as well. I have gone to school many years and studied in Adventist and Christian institutions and in secular ones. And I can tell you that um, if you are not rooted and grounded, the world can swallow you up. The world is becoming more and more secular. And some of the faces that we see are the brilliant minds of people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, who, when he explains the universe, explains it without any creator, no design. A very brilliant man. But when he does, when he describes science and the, the astrophysicist that he is, he does a phenomenal job of describing the universe. But, but the universe has no God. And in fact, um, if, if you listen carefully, it's almost as if, if you believe there's a God, something's wrong with you. Of course, Bill Maher doesn't hold back in his documentary, Religious. He intentionally mocks anyone who believes, Muslim, Jew, or Christian, anyone of faith is mocked. Um, and they have created this art of disbelief. Uh, Bill Maher brags on his show, um, another very intelligent and very, very talented person, but he brags on his show of those who he pulls out of Christianity or religion and into atheism, uh, almost like it's a sport. There is, there's a movement, young people, in our society to extract God and faith. And one who was deemed to have uh, one of the greatest minds of our time is Stephen Hawking. Um, and he says, uh, and this is one of his quotes, he says, we are just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet of a very average star. But we can understand the universe. That makes us something very special. Well, that is a, that's a staggering statement. And it is becoming the way the world simply believes. And it's frightening because if you even look at what he's saying, it doesn't really make sense. If we're just a breed of monkeys on a, on a planet with an, on a tiny planet with an average star, how, why did we develop the ability to understand the universe? That wasn't necessary for survival if you understand um, the theory of evolution. And almost in, in, inherent in what he's saying is that there has to be some divine spark in the minds of men. But, but the world has believed and, and has moved to believe that somehow we are foolish to believe what we believe. And as I was preparing to speak to the young people of the conference, um, I, I, was, I was really moved as I prayed to speak to the fact that if you are going to be a Christian today, you are going to have to be strong. Fairweather Christians will not survive this day and age. Young person, if you're only a Christian because your mother's a Christian, you're not going to survive uh, as a Christian. You won't make it to the other side as a Christian. If you're only a Christian because you went to Sabbath school and Pathfinders, if you're only a Christian because you got baptized when everybody else did at, at 11 or 12 years of age, if your Christianity is really just wrapped up in kind of the cultural awareness of growing up in an Adventist church and you do not have your own relationship with God and understanding of his word, you will not survive. In fact, Paul later on says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 18, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool 
that he may be wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. For it is risen, written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. In other words, God catches them in their craftiness. Paul goes on, he says, and again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in men. Young people, if you're going to be a Christian, do not glory in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, social um, media of, of the famous people of our time, the influencers of our time, do not think that somehow they have something special because many of them do not know God. And in fact, their wisdom is really only vanity. Think of how vain it is that man thinks he basically evolved to create himself. Therefore, let no man glory in men. And of course, there's a strong movement, and young people are being pulled in. Three decades ago, America lost its religion. Why? And they talk about these political reasons and organizations that say, imagine no religion, and put it up on billboards in cities for organizations like Freedom From Religion Foundation. And what this has meant is that there's a new group of Americans when it comes to religion and religious uh, categories. Uh, One of them is a group called the nuns, meaning they have no religious affiliation whatsoever. And you see here that the accelerated growth of the unaffiliated from 1972 to 2016, people have have shaken off religion and have moved to a belief of basically uh, that is uh, minimal at best. What you hear people say nowadays, I don't believe in religion. I'm spiritual. I don't go to church. Church, I don't need church walls for religion. I just stay home. You know what the Bible says? Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. So Paul says in the book of Hebrew. And people say, well, I, I, don't have to, I don't have to have religion. I can be spiritual. But let me tell you something. People are religious about their favorite football team. Favor, uh, they're religious about March Madness and following the brackets. They're religious about following their, 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 the people that they follow on social media. But when it comes to God, you say, you know, I don't, I don't need religion. In fact, when you look by age, what you see is that all of a sudden there's been a, uh, there is a, a, a heightened level of religiously unaffiliated in the 18 to 29 year old age. And as you comes down, as this wave carries out, America is going to become less and less affiliated with any belief. And the challenge based on the theme of this week of revival, uh, that it is possible, go and do. The challenge is going to be that when we go to do, we are no longer going to reach people who at least have some basic concept of the scriptures. The evangelism in the next decade is going to look nothing like it did in the last century. We're not going to be walking into people who have some respect for the Bible or scripture or the God of heaven or for his son, Jesus Christ. We are going to go into a different realm. We'll talk more about how we're going to have to reach people later in the week. But I want you to understand, young people, that these times are different and we're being influenced by so many different. This is not happening by accident. I actually got some lyrics from who is arguably the greatest rapper of all time, Jay-Z. Jay-Z, in in one of his albums, he has lyrics. He says, question religion, question it all, question existence until them questions are solved, right? 
He's saying, listen, question it. In fact, make them solve the question. But it's difficult to solve the questions. If you could solve all the questions of life, there would be no need for faith. He says, I'm secular. Tell the heckler, settle down. Your religion creates division like my Maybach partition. The move away from religion. And then he says, I confess God in the flesh, live among the serpents, turn arenas into churches. He says basically that he is God in the flesh. It's Jay-Z who is a member of the 5% nation of Islam, a religion that believes that the black man is God and the white man is the devil. Look it up for yourself. That's what the religion believes. That's why when he raps, he says things like, I am, I am Jehovah God MC. Young people, as we listen to this music and, and we're influenced by the lyrics It has an effect on us. In fact, we are told in the spirit of prophecy that by beholding, we become changed. And we'll see more on the science around how the media and social media um, and music influence our opinions, our thoughts, and yes, even our behaviors. So So much has happened in the world that now DC Comics actually introduced Jesus as a character, but it's, it's a distorted story of Jesus because he comes back to gain, to learn how to save the world from a superhero called Sun Man. Isn't it interesting? The Lord of the Sabbath has to come to earth to learn how to save the world from someone named after the first day of the week. Times are changing. As our children read these comic books and look up to the superheroes, all of this influences the way Christianity is viewed. In fact, in one article, uh, I, I clip here, they say how superhero films are replacing religion in teaching us how to live. Well, the argument now is that, in fact, the morality of the new, uh, uh, this new world order that uh, if you've been following the news, the Pope has come out and said that we need a new world order after COVID. And what, what, what some are saying is that this new world order's morality should be defined by how superheroes handle themselves. In the scripture, the enemies of the people of God were always described as those who tried to bring the image of God down into the image of man or animals, and then they'd carve them into idols and worship them. In some ways, we are going to see a resurgence of that. In some ways, the popularity of the superhero is one example of that. Acts chapter 9 and verse 2 says, And desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, Whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. So Saul's job was to go to Damascus. It was a long hike. It would take him about a week. Um, It was 120 miles thereabout for him to go from Jerusalem to Damascus. So he was on a mission to, uh, to extinguish. There were many synagogues in Damascus, and each one, the Jews would be probably of different ethnic backgrounds or from different parts of the world, and they'd stick together based on where they were from, probably. And he was going to root out the Christians that were in these synagogues. He had permission. He had the certified paperwork to do this kind of Spiritual bounty hunting. But something happens to him. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 3, the Bible says, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about, about him a light from heaven. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, 
And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And as he's getting close, and he's actually almost at the end of his journey, you have to believe, based on the way the story plays out, a light comes into existence, a bright light. Um, Later on, Paul says that the light was brighter than the noonday sun. It was about noon, and this light was so bright that it, it was brighter than the sun. In verse 4, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? His question is a profound one. And he said, who art thou, Lord? It's almost like he knew who he was talking to. But I want to submit to you as we talk about finding God that we don't really find God. God has never been missing. The truth of the matter is that God finds us. Paul was on his way, thought he was doing the right thing, thought he was living a a righteous life, and yet God had to come find him in the person of Jesus Christ. You don't find God really. God has to find you, but you've got to be open to him finding you. So we got to find God in a godless society. And I want to give you four places that you must find God. Four places. But if you look carefully, God has been there waiting for you all along. And the first place is you can find God in your blessings. The second one, you can find God in your trials. For some folks, these last three aren't going to make a whole lot of sense. You can find God in your doubts, and you can find God in your weakness. The four places you should be able to find God, four of many, but we'll hit these four tonight. Here, find God in in, in blessings. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul writes, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice always. Always. Let me tell you something. In life, we often, the devil convinces us. I'm talking to the young people right now. God often convinces, uh, the devil often convinces us, the devil often convinces us to focus on what we don't have rather than what we do have. Even as a young person, when I was young, we were poor. My mother was a single mother. If you've ever heard me preach, I talk about the fact that my father left my mother when I was two years of age. And we struggled for the first part of my growing up. I watched my mother get her associate's degree, bachelor's degree, master's degree, and we moved up like the Jeffersons, for those of you who who that might resonate with. But I want to tell you that when I was in, the, in, the, in the, about the third or the fourth grade, I, my mother gave me my older brother's hand-me-down jeans to wear to school. The problem was my older brother was seven years older than me, so he was from a, gen- from a whole decade before. The clothes was from a whole decade before. So if you can imagine me, in, maybe I was in fifth or sixth grade, imagine me going to school in bell-bottoms. Oh, man, it was a mess. It was a mess. I mean, I was looking like JJ and the Huxtables were on TV. I was, I wanted so bad to have stuff.
stuff. Everybody else, every fad. I remember when Atari came out, everybody in the school got an Atari. I was, I, when my brother and I wanted to play games, we, we'd take out coins and flick them and play table soccer and football. And, and I didn't realize, don't miss this young people, that when I look back on my life, the best, happiest years of my life were actually the years when I had the least. My mother created a comfortable home for us. And most importantly, my mother made sure that we knew who Christ was. And I'm going to talk about this more tomorrow night when we talk about a lifestyle of faith. That's our topic for tomorrow night. But I believe that, see, a lot of folk think that the, the, it's, it's, the, it's the beautiful drama of those people who are, who are converted later in life and come into the church and, and there's these amazing dramatic stories. And yes, they are dramatic, but I want to tell you that there is power in being raised in a house where the Holy Spirit dwells. There's power in it because the frontal lobe, we're going to talk more about the frontal lobe later in the week. The frontal lobe of your mind is where the seal of God is going to be placed. And all those years in a home where when you, you come together as a family, we would sing hymns to enter the Sabbath and to exit the Sabbath. We were in Sabbath school on Sabbath morning. We did Pathfinders. We were in the choir. I couldn't sing, but I was still in the choir. And let me tell you something, it formed my mind. This is why the scripture says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Because in that atmosphere where God is invited in. And let me tell you something, I looked at those times, I wished I could have moved out. I remember playing football and I was the only kid walking off the field and no father there to meet me and how upset and angry I was at times. And I look back now and I wish I had seen that God was in the meager blessings that he gave. I work hard because when I was 13 years old, I started working and taking care of my and, and buying my clothes so that my mother would get a, a reprieve. I would, I could, I clean the house. I cook meals. My mother, I, my mother, I, I say it like this. We were domesticated. God is in the blessings. And sometimes, especially in a world of materialism, you look around at all these billionaire people. I just read where Kanye West is worth like $6.6 billion. And I said, mercy. And you think you want all that stuff? Let me tell you something. I, as a physician, have seen some of the wealthiest people are the most miserable people. 5150s have to be called to have them put into psychiatric units because of how miserable they are sometimes. I challenge you, find God in your blessings. No matter how small it seems like it is, young person, if you're growing up in a Christian home and you have a parent or, or two parents that love you, I'm telling you to hold on to it. There are a lot of young people in this world that don't have that. But the next one, you got to be able to find God in trials. James 1, 2, 3, and 4 says it like this. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. 
knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. I wish I had time to get into this tonight. We'll hit it more a little later in the week, but I want to submit to you that in your difficulties, there are a lot of young people today, when they see something bad happen, they want to pack up and run from God. But I submit to you that like the three Hebrew boys who were just teenagers, probably, that when they stood for God, they met Jesus, not in the comfort of the palace of of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. They met Jesus in the fiery furnace. You will find God in trial if you allow yourself to see his protection in the terrible times of this life. I can tell you I've been through some trials. And ironically, I the times I have been closest to God, the times when I went through the most difficulty. You got to find God in your trials. The third one is find God in your doubts. Mark 9, 22 and 23 says it like this. And oftentimes it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, if you can believe, anything is possible to him that believe. This father who has this demoniac boy who the nine disciples who could not cast out brings his son to Jesus and says, listen, Jesus, if you can have compassion, if you can do anything, help my son. Jesus says, who are you ifing? The if is never with Christ. He spoke into nothing and the world came into existence. Jesus said, no, the if's not on me, the if's on you. If you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. And a father's response is what I want you to take from this piece of of, of the puzzle. Mark 9, 24 says, and straightway the father of the child cried out and said, what with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. The father found Christ found God in his doubting. This church is liberating. It means that when you have doubt, doubt doesn't disqualify you from coming to God and receiving his blessing, his mercy, and even in this case, a miracle. Doubt simply says, I need to bring even my doubts to him. You'll find him in your doubts if you search for him in your doubts. tell a story all the time of when my mother was dying of cancer. In the very hospital where she was an administrator, the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center, uh, uh, the university where I went to medical school, the University of Miami, I remember walking in and seeing my mother, skin and bones from the chemotherapy. Her hair was, was, had fallen out and only a little bit had grown back. When I walked into that room, my mother was smiling and bubbly, and I was cut to the core. It had been a long three years since her diagnosis, and I had tried calling every cancer treatment center in the country. As a physician, I talked to some of the top oncologists trying to find a way to keep my mother alive. And when I finally went into that room 
for the last visit with her and saw her in that condition, it broke me. Doubts begin to rise up. And I looked at her. Uh, I, I, she, she, she was so uh, emaciated. And I went into the closet, actually into the bathroom of her, of her, of her room, a uh, hospital room. And I fell on my knees as she was sleeping. And I began to agonize with God. God, how could you? How could you? This woman was a pathfinder leader. She, she was a treasurer in the church. She, she raised us to know you. She, she fought through all kinds of difficulties uh, in her, in her um, migration from Jamaica to America and all the things that she had been through. I said, how, Lord, could you allow her to, to die such an ignoble death? As I wept and cried to God, I heard a voice. Speak to me. And it said, she has been perfected. She has been perfected. And it all made sense. And I want to tell you that my mother and I and the rest of the family sang what a friend we have in Jesus the rest of the time she was alive through the rest of that weekend. I found God in my doubt that weekend. Because I realized I look at life in terms of 70, 90, 100 years. God sees life in terms of millennia. The last place you need to find God is actually in your weakness. Find God in your weakness. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore... Will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me? This is Paul speaking about the thorn in his flesh, this thing that he just couldn't get over. But he says, ultimately, God, Christ, your grace is sufficient for me. Christ says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul then says, I most gladly would rather uh, to glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. First, 2 Corinthians 12, 10 says, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. I want to give this to you young people. Some of you, are your Christian walk has been, you've been waffling a bit. You, you may have made some mistakes. You may have fallen. We're going to talk more about this Wednesday night. You may have, have, have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but I want to submit to you that the evidence of God in your life needs to be the way he meets you in your weakness. If you had no weaknesses and had no problem, you'd have no need for Christ. And I know some of us have some terrible addictions. I speak to young people who are, who are sometimes on drugs, alcohol, addicted to pornography. I've, I've been in sessions with young people who are gang affiliated and can't get out of that life. I, I've been around them, but I am here to tell you that like Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, if you take your weakness and turn it over to him, your weakness will be where Christ is strongest in you. Why? Because in your weakness, you'll be driven to your knees. It keep you humble. 
keep you teachable, ever in his word, guarding against the temptations of the enemy, even your weaknesses, is a place where you can find God. Acts 9, 5, and he said, who art thou, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. In other words, you keep kicking, but you're not going to get anywhere, Saul. The church isn't going anywhere. In fact, one of the reasons the Sanhedrin had begun to go after the Christians is because after they scattered them from Jerusalem, all that really happened is that they like seeds everywhere they went. They planted and the Christians began to pop up more and more in synagogues all over the Middle East. And that's why they were going after them. And Jesus says, listen, I'm the one you're persecuting. It's me. When you go after my followers, I'm the one you're persecuting, which tells me that when you're going through trial, Christ is going through trial with you. The Bible says in Acts 9 and verse 6, and he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. This is the theme for the weak. It is possible. Go and do. When you find him, he will give you an assignment. Verse uh, Acts 9, 7 says, and the men which journeyed with him stood speechless. They heard a voice, but but seeing no man. In fact, if you take all of the three times that this story is told in the book of Acts and and the times when when Paul tells the story, what you find is that uh, the men could probably hear a voice, but it was not discernible to them. They could see a light, but they could see no form of a man. It was Paul who could see the shape and form of Christ and could hear clearly his voice. It was Paul who later, uh, Ananias would be told, he is my chosen vessel. Now, let me tell you something, young people. Some of you are his chosen vessel. Devil wants to sift you as wheat to remove you from the faith because some of you, God's hand is on you and you can feel it. So what happens? The devil ups his game comes after you, there's big parties all the time and you get, everybody's got a crush on you and all these things start happening, all to draw you away from Christ. Verse eight, and Saul arose from the earth and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And when he was three days without sight, and he was, he was three days without sight, and neither did he eat or drink. Saul fasted and began the process of learning and unlearning what he had been told. I'll finish with just a quote from the Spirit of Prophecy. As Saul yielded himself fully to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, he saw the mistakes of his life and recognized the far-reaching claims of the law of God. He who had been a proud Pharisee, confident that he was justified by his good works, now bowed before God with the humility and simplicity of a little child, confessing his own unworthiness and pleading the merits of a crucified and risen Savior. Saul longed to come into full harmony and communion with the Father and the Son, and in the intensity of his desire for pardon and acceptance, he offered up fervent supplications to the throne of grace. 
the prayers of the patient of the penitent Pharisee were not in vain. Hear this, young people. The inmost thoughts and emotions of his heart were transformed by divine grace. And his nobler faculties were brought into harmony with the eternal purposes of God. Christ and his righteousness became to Saul more than the whole world. Acts of the Apostles, page 119 to 120. I leave you with this tonight, young people. There was a time when I thought that the things of this world was what was most important. I thought for sure that if I could get fame and fortune, that is what mattered most. And when I look back on my life and some of the foolish decisions I made and the foolish things I did, I, I am often overwhelmed with guilt. But I want to submit this to you, young people. When you find Christ on your road to Damascus, he is not concerned with what you used to do. His concern is with what you're about to do. And I want to submit to you, young person who has fallen, who has made your mistakes, who has failed God. Maybe you spent uh, time in the world in a way that is not becoming of a Christian or of the way you were raised. But I want to submit to you that there is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. I stand before you today not because I'm perfect, but because by the blood of Jesus Christ I have been redeemed. I challenge you tonight as we close, take time to find God in the four places I mentioned. For blessings will come, trials will come, your weaknesses will come, all of these things will come. I want you to be the type of Christian that finds God no matter what your circumstances. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. I pray for the young people who listen tonight, wherever they may be. I pray, Father God, that they would find you, not because you were lost, but because we were lost. That Lord, they would forge a relationship with you that is not trifling, that is not dependent on who's looking, not dependent on their parents, but a relationship that is forged and dependent on the blood of Jesus Christ. This is our prayer tonight and bring us back safely together tomorrow night. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org